Welcome to the Mount Zion Wesleyan Church Podcast. We hope this message encourages you, challenges you, and inspires you to step into the life God has for you. For more information about our church, visit us online at mountzionwesleyan.com. So we are in John chapter 4 this morning. If you got your Bibles, turn there. We're going to be looking at starting in verse 1. It says, When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea, which is where Jerusalem is, and departed. He went up north again for Galilee. And it says he had to pass through Samaria. Now, why did Jesus have to pass through Samaria? You see, in the Greek, that the way that the sentence is worded, it's a, a statement essentially of necessity. You see, going through Samaria for Jesus wasn't an option It was a command. In the next chapter in John 5, Jesus says, I do what the Father does. So the point here is that Jesus is not just casually living in Israel, going around to wherever he might please. He is on a mission. He is intentionally moving by the power of the Holy Spirit. He's in communication with God, and God is saying, I need you to go to Samaria. So he passes through Samaria. Now, this is interesting because the Samaritans, the people that lived in this region, which was right between Jerusalem, which is kind of to the south in Israel, and Galilee, which is where Jesus spent a quite a bit of his ministry, it's in between the two. So the most logical path is straight through. The problem is the Jews and the Samaritans don't get along. The Samaritans, according to Jewish tradition, were considered essentially Jewish half-breeds. They had gone through a series of conquests and uh, being taken slavery and slavery and all this kind of stuff. And as they moved back into the area, the region of Samaria, they had intermarried with several different cultures. And the purity of the gospel, the purity of the, the Old Testament had began to be tainted. So the Uh, Jews that were pure-blooded viewed them as unclean people. In fact, to the point that if you traveled through Samaria and came into contact with a Samaritan as a Jew, you would be considered unclean. You'd have to go through uh, a, a purification process. So this creates an issue. Verse 5 says, So they came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there also. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour, or around noontime, uh, just for time perspective. Now, the region in this area, this city, Sikar, which is also identified with the Old Testament city of Shechem. Keep that in mind because we're going to talk about that in a minute. It's about 40 miles to the north 
of Jerusalem, where they were leaving from. So it's quite a hike, okay? It's a, it's a, it's a journey to get there. So Jesus is tired. Now, this region of Samaria is significant in biblical history. Just to name a few, to give a, a, a quick context, in Genesis chapter 12, this region, this area, is where Abraham, who at the time in Genesis 12 was named Abram, interacts with God. He intersects with God. He has an encounter with God where God promises him that he is going to be the father of a great nation. That's in this very spot back in Genesis 12. It also is the spot, as we read in the story, where Jacob bought a piece of land. He dug a well in this area. When he arrived there, he built an altar in this particular area and named it El Elohi Israel, which means God, the God of Israel. He's dedicating this region to God. Coincidentally, that's in Genesis 33, by the way, at this point in the story where Jesus is hanging out at this well, that well is about 1,800 years old. Jacob had dug this well, him and his servants, and that well is actually still in existence today. According to provenance in Israel, it is one of the most trusted sites that you can still visit today. It is 100% the site that Jesus visited, that Jacob dug, that all of this stuff happened around this region and at this well. That well today is now about 4,000 years old, and it still works. It's a working well. You can go there today, drop the bucket down, and get a drink of water out of the same well that Jesus was sitting by with this woman asking for water. That blows my mind. All the time when I hear stuff like that, it blows my mind. In Genesis 48, this is the area where Jacob gave this land as an inheritance to his son, Joseph. Also in Joshua chapter 24, this is the area where Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel together and gave the famous passage of, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, where they renewed the covenant of Israel back to God. So this place is biblically significant. It's significant that the Holy Spirit led Jesus to this area. You see, God has an interesting way of circling back to things that matter. He has an interesting way of circling us back around whenever we need a new level of freedom or a new encounter with him or a, a new insight about who we are or who he says we are, whether it's a memory, a circle of influence, a talent, a skill set. Just because you might be done with something for a season doesn't mean that it's fallen off God's radar. Especially if that thing is spiritually significant in his plan for you. Back in around uh, 2007, um, I didn't cry about this in first service. Whoo! Okay, uh, back in 2007, around uh, that time, my wife and I weren't doing very well. Um, I had confessed uh, an addiction to pornography and we were in a mess. So my answer to that was, I'm going to go be in a band. 
Good idea, Brent. I'd played music uh, most of my life, and uh, we were, um, I was playing music, and I thought that was what the Lord, no, I didn't think that's what the Lord wanted. That's what I wanted to do with my life. I wanted to be a musician. And uh, I knew that I was not being obedient. I knew that I was not being faithful to the Lord. I knew that this is what I wanted. But I try to rationalize it. You know, I can, I can evangelize to the music community, man. I can, I can do this. But I knew that this isn't what God wanted for my life. So after major conviction from the Lord and being faced with the reality that if I continued down this path that I was going to lose my marriage... I was playing in clubs and all that kind of fun stuff, and it wasn't a good scene for me to be in. So I give up my drum set. I sold out, got rid of everything. Music actually was a place of pain for me at that time. It was hard. It was hard. Anytime people would talk about music or you know even worship music, stuff like that, I was like, I'm done. God's done with me in that season. I thought it was done. Fast forward several years, the Lord brings great healing in our marriage, great healing to me, and we're back in ministry and serving the Lord and all this kind of fun stuff, and I'm at a gathering of people that I don't know. I'm multiple states away from North Carolina. I'm in a place with people that I do not know. I don't know a single person at this gathering, and this person walks up to me years later after I sold out of everything and walked away. This person walks up to me and says, are you a musician? And I go, well, that's a long story. And she said, I feel like the Lord's saying that he wants to restore the music in your life. And I was like, well, thank you. I I appreciate that. I'll just take it. Anytime somebody gives me a word from the Lord or that they think is from the Lord, I put it in my pocket and I just sit on it for a while. You know how I know if a word from the Lord is real? If it happens. If it comes to pass. So I don't walk away thinking, well, that person's crazy. No, I just tuck it away. And if it's true, it will come to pass. Literally about two weeks later, um, I'm back in North Carolina, and my dad gives me a call. And he says, Brent, I want you to come look at this drum set. Now, most of you don't know my dad, and I love him dearly, but my dad is all about getting a deal. You know what I'm saying? And usually, if he calls me and says, hey, I want you to come look at this, what it means is either A, he got a first act music set from Walmart, or B, he found it on the side of the road, and he's thinking we can, like, fix this thing up, right? And it's, like, obliterated. That's usually what happens. So dad says, I got this drum set come check it out. And I was like, yeah, nah, I'm done with that. I walk in and in his living room is a really expensive drum set. I mean, very expensive, custom made, super nice. And I was like, dad, where did you get this? And he, he told me the series of events that happened. And he was like, this dude gave it to me and now I'm giving it to you. Free. Several thousand dollar drum set free. And immediately when he said that, the Lord brought that word back up to my mind. And I was like, okay, God, 
I guess you need this for something, so I'll receive it. You see, friends, the Lord is in the business of reconciliation. And that's what he's wanting to do with this woman at the well, and that's what he wants to do in you. He goes on in verse 7. It says, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For the disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Now, John's Jewish readers would have immediately recognized this scenario for a number of reasons. Um, One has to do with the way in which the story itself is structured, the way it's told. You see, Jewish people were an oral tradition people. They passed along traditions, teachings, wisdom, stuff from God, literally through stories. That was part of the way that they uh, imparted information and wisdom from God from generation to generation. So the flow of the story is important. Now catch this, because this is nuts. In the flow of the story, you have this, a journey, and then you have uh, a main character encountering a woman at a water source. There's some sort of interaction regarding water at the water source. They go back and bring news of this interaction between the main character and the woman to the community or to the family. That person is met with hospitality, and then a marriage ensues. It's a flow of story. This happens three times in the Old Testament. In Genesis chapter 24, it happens with Isaac and Rebekah. In Genesis 29, it happens with Jacob and Rachel. In Exodus chapter 2, it happens with Moses and Zipporah. All of them meet their spouse at a watering hole. There is a situation that happens. There's hospitality and news that occurs, and then a marriage ensues. So John recognizes this. The authors of Scripture use this literary element empowered by the Holy Spirit to create a sense of expectancy regarding the outcome of this story. Now, It's like a logical flow, kind of like those Christmas Hallmark movies. There's like 2,000 of them, yet they all have the same plot line, right? A career woman who's too busy for love, but she finds herself moving to this small town where there's a local bachelor that teaches her the true meaning of the holiday spirit. It begins to snow, and they kiss, And then somewhere along the line, there's a dog involved. (laughs) Every single Hallmark movie I just summed up in one sentence. Now, just want you to know, I've never in my life seen a Hallmark movie. I still get to retain my man card. I got that information from my wife. John utilizes this, the flow of a story, to set up a plot twist that his Jewish readers would not have seen coming. In verse 9, it goes on, the, the Samaritan woman said to Jesus, how is it that you, a Jew, are asking me for a drink, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying this to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. 
Now, see, the woman here knows and understands the customs of the Jews. She knows that there's enmity, there's struggle between the Jews and the Samaritans, her people group. She knows that this man standing in front of her would have become ceremonially unclean simply by touching the water jar that she's drawing water with. In fact, it would have been considered taboo for her and him to be even having a conversation because he's a rabbi and she is not his wife. But what she doesn't know is who she's talking to. You see, Jesus is telling this woman, if you're spiritually discerning, If you have eyes to see and ears to hear, you would know that what I'm offering you is a free gift of salvation, which is a source of sustenance for your soul. It's sustenance for your soul. You see, the term living water here, um, it was actually a term that, that Jacob's well was used at. Jacob's well was considered a source of living water, at least in the natural sense. The well was about 100 feet deep, and where the city was, it was at the base of two mountains, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. The water would run off from these two mountains down to a subterranean spring in which that well was attached to, which is the reason why you can get water from it today. It is a source of clean, flowing, natural, living water. Water. See, Jesus does this all the time in the Gospels. He's always speaking in a spiritual undertone. He uses a concept that people understand, but there's something so much deeper if you're willing to search it out. Proverbs 25, uh, chapter 25, verse 2 says, It's the glory of God to conceal a matter. It's the glory of kings to search it out. God is looking for people that are willing to be desperate enough to go on a hunt for his presence, to desire intimacy to the point that they are willing to search him out, and he will give portions of his glory to those who are willing to carry it. That's what he's looking for. Jesus is always speaking in spiritual undertone. Verse 11 says, the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. She's still thinking naturally here. The well's deep. Where are you going to get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock? Now, this I picture as kind of a funny interaction between Jesus and uh, this woman I picture Jesus laughing a little bit under his breath at this moment because she's talking about Jacob. She's bringing this point up. You see, in Genesis chapter 32, there's an interaction that Jacob has over 1,800 years ago from the very moment that Jesus is having this conversation with the woman at the well. About 1,800 years prior, Jacob is on his way to the city of Shechem, which is where they are, where they're sitting. Over 1,800 years ago, Jacob's on his way, and one night as he's making his way toward this spot, Genesis 32 records that Jacob uh, wrestled with a man the entire night. He has this interaction where he's wrestling all night with a man. And it says when day broke or when the sun started coming up, the man touched Jacob's hip socket and knocked his hip out of joint and said, let me go. 
Jacob says, I won't let you go until you bless me. So the man does. The man changes Jacob's name from Jacob, which means deceiver, supplanter, to Israel, meaning the God who contends or one who has wrestled with God. You see, Jacob's identity, his name, had been deceiver his whole life. That was the identity that he, that he took on. If you know Jacob's story, go back and read it. Multiple times over, he had operated in deception. He inhabited and took on his name as an identity. This man changes it to Israel saying, you've struggled with God and you've overcome. Jacob says in Genesis 32, I wrestled with God, I contended with God, and yet God delivered me. I saw God face to face, but he delivered me, which by the way, the word deliverance and salvation are the same word. He saved me. Now my question is, who do you think it was that Jacob wrestled? I'll give you a hint. His name starts with J. It was Jesus. This in uh, anytime a pre-incarnate Jesus shows up in the Old Testament like this, it's called a Christophany. This is Jesus showing up on the scene, wrestling with Jacob, changing his name. So when this woman at the well has this interaction, says, "Are you greater than our father Jacob?" Jesus, I imagine, is thinking back to this moment, going, "Yeah, I know him. Yes, I'm greater than him. He's a mighty good wrestler. He's a mighty good." wrestler. You see, since the fall of humanity, even in the Old Testament, Jesus has been in the business of taking people with a mistaken identity and calling them into who they really are. That's what's happening in this story. He is calling this woman out of an identity into who he sees her to be. Now, this woman is clearly still thinking in natural terms regarding this living water situation. In verse 13, Jesus says to her, everyone who drinks of this water, meaning the well of Jacob, that water, anybody who drinks from that will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. Once again, he's talking in spiritual terms. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. In other words, Jesus is saying that the salvation that I'm offering you will become a dwelling place for the spirit of God within you. That place where God resides in you, which can feed your soul. You see, when we say yes to Jesus, just like what happened in the story of Jesus and Nicodemus in John 3, when we say yes to Jesus, we are born again. Our spirit becomes alive in Christ. We are sealed, as it says in Ephesians, for eternity by the promise of the Holy Spirit. What God wants to do is not just give us access to salvation, but he wants to take up residence within us and be Become a spot of living water, a place of sustenance for your soul. Your spirit is sealed. You're going to heaven if you said yes to Jesus and you are following him diligently with your life. However, guess what? Our soul still gets messed up. Anybody had anxiety recently? Anger? Unholy anger? Depression? Frustration? Sadness? 
Our soul is capable of catching the messy, broken world that we live in. And God wants to provide a spring of water which flows out of us, not simply for us where he can reside, but for other people as well, where other people can come to the well. Spiritual sustenance that quiets and replenishes your soul is a free gift from God. But it's not just for you. It's for the community. He's calling each one of us to partner with him to be a fountain of hope, of living water that people can gather and be provided by, by the presence of God in you. It's not you. If you think it's you, it's not. It's God working out within you. You see, God, people say this all the time, like God wants to use you for something. I don't like that term. That sounds weird, being used. I don't like it, just to be honest. What I think God wants to do is he wants to partner with your story. Think about it this way. My son, when I tell him, I pick up a a box and I say, hey, buddy, help me carry this box. My son's five. I don't need him to carry the box. I want him to carry the box because I want to be with him. It's not about the box. It's about the presence. It's about the intimacy. That's what God does with each and every single one of us. He wants to partner with you and join up with you. Does he need you? Absolutely not. But he wants you. He wants an intimacy with you. I don't want to steal the thunder of John chapter 7, but Jesus in John 7 says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And he was saying that about the presence of the Spirit. That's what he is wanting. Friends, if we don't access the water, catch this, we can't nourish our assignment. If you're not accessing the water, there's no sustenance for the assignment, not for you or for anyone else that is partnering in this situation, in your assigned spot in life. Now this woman, still thinking in natural terms in verse 15, she says, sir, give me this water. I want this. This sounds good. So that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Now, if you were a first century reader of the passage, you would have uh, automatically had this question going on in your mind. Why is she showing up to the well at 12 o'clock? Why is she coming at the middle of the day? That's usually work done early in the morning. Here we see the answer for that. You see, in verse 16, Jesus says, go get your husband. Go call your husband. Tell him to come. The woman said to him, I don't have a husband. Jesus said, to her, you're right in saying you don't have a husband. For in fact, you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. Now, when people read this, a lot of times we have a tendency to jump right to the woman's sin at this point. She's had five husbands, and she's with a man that is not her husband currently. So yes, Jesus is highlighting her sin. He's highlighting a sinful choice in her li- or sinful choices in her life that she's made. However, that's not all that Jesus is doing here. When Jesus interacted with broken people in the scriptures, he never simply called out their sin. That's what Pharisees do. They call out a sin and say, you're not doing great. 
Jesus calls out a sin here, but he also gives provision. He always gives a way. Jesus is not simply calling out the sin of this woman. He's calling out a label that's been placed on this woman. And that label is rejected. Rejected. You see, in this time period, it was virtually impossible for a woman to divorce a man because of the way that uh, law had been interpreted and put forth. It was almost impossible for a woman to divorce a man. So this woman had been rejected potentially five times by five different husbands, barring one of them dying, of course. She comes out to get water when no other women are there because she can't stand to bear the burden of carrying the sin of her moral choices and the label of rejection that she carries as well, the identity of a rejected woman because nobody wants her. You've had five opportunities and you can't get it right. Nobody wants you. That's what she was hearing. The guy that you're with now He doesn't even want to marry you. She was carrying a label of rejection. Jesus wants her to see that it's not the covenant of an earthly marriage that's going to make her accepted. It's not going to bring her acceptance. Getting a sugar daddy won't fix the problem. It's the living water. Coming under this new covenant of salvation through Jesus where real identity and intimacy with God will be found and develop. Now, this is nuts what happens next. The woman says, Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Good insight. Good insight, lady. She's taking a step. You see, I believe this is where she's beginning to take a step toward faith. She doesn't know him as Messiah yet, but she knows that there's something different. Why? Because he didn't just call out her sin and shun her like every other man she had ever encountered. He calls her out, but he stays with her. He's engaging in this conversation. So she begins to say, I think I can trust him. I'm going to trust him with a more intimate peace. Here's my question next. Our fathers, verse 20, worshiped on this mountain. But you say it's in Jerusalem, the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour's coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem where you will worship the Father. She's wanting to know about intimacy with God. And she's asking him a question because she's wanting to understand how to walk and encounter in intimacy with the presence of God. That's what's happening in this moment. See, this is where Jesus begins to reinforce truth to her. That she's accepted by God and that he wants her to live a certain way. He wants her to walk in intimacy with him. Catch this because if you don't hear anything else, please hear what I'm getting ready to say. Intimacy is encounter coupled with a fierce protection of boundary lines. God has a certain way in which he wants every single one of us to live. Most of it, by the way, is found here. He's got a set of guidelines, boundary lines that he wants. Why? Not because he's trying to tell us what to do. It's because he loves us and wants to protect us. David in Psalm 16 said, The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Think about this in marriage. When you have a desire to walk in intimacy with someone else, the way that you get there is by encounter intimacy. Hint, hint, I'm not going to say all the other things that come along with intimacy, but y'all know what I'm talking about. 
intimacy, stuff you don't share with everybody else, coupled with a fierce protection of boundaries. If you have encounter without boundaries, that's spiritual adultery. If you have boundaries without encounter, that's legalism. Intimacy is when you combine the two and you fiercely protect it. That's the result. That's what God is looking for. Those are the people that God is seeking. This woman wants to know, how can I get to that place of worship? This is what I need to know. She goes on and says, or Jesus goes on and says in 22, you worship what you don't know. In other words, you're not walking in intimacy. You're just trying. For salvation is from the Jews. We worship what we know. Salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. This is what he's looking for. He's looking for people that are willing to be intimate with him. He's looking for people that have that same desire. 24 says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Catch this. Jesus moves from a place of worship, meaning a brick-and-mortar building, a location where you have to go in order to get in the presence with God. He changes the subject to the nature of worship, to the nature of worship. You see, the reason why this is significant is because it causes us to face the truth of our lives in connection with the desire for intimacy with God. We have to be willing to be vulnerable. When it says God is spirit and those who worship, worship in spirit and in truth, worship, the word in Greek literally means to prostrate yourself, to lay yourself out there. In spirit is literally the, the, the center of your innermost being. And then it says in truth. Truth means that which is completely revealed. In order for us to walk in intimacy with God, he is saying in this passage that we must worship him in spirit, the most intimate place we have, and truth, meaning completely revealed, totally opened up before God. We need to be totally and completely vulnerable with God and not hide a thing. The question, friends, is are we willing to submit to this? If you want the presence of God in your life, it's got to be that. It's absolutely necessary. It's not fun for me to stand up on this stage and tell you that I had an addiction to pornography and that my wife and I were in a mess back in 2007 and our life was a wreck and we were talking about divorce. That was a possibility in the realm of a place where I had never said divorce would be an option. But life got so hard. It's not a good thing. I don't feel good when I come up here and bare my soul to you people. That's not awesome for me. But God calls me to be vulnerable. 
in order to get to intimacy with him, I've got to be willing to be vulnerable with myself. But catch this. It's not just me being vulnerable with God. In order to bring other people into the empowering moments and encounters with God, he wants to partner with my story to do that. He wants to partner with your story to do that. At the end of the story of the woman at the well, the woman goes back to the community and says, there is a man and he told me everything and I think he might be the Christ and the people come out to see Jesus because of her testimony. At the end of the story, it says that the people said, we came because of your testimony, but now we believe because we've seen it with our eyes. We've encountered it. Here's the thing, guys. Your testimony is not just for you. And unfortunately, you don't get to pick the parts that you've got to tell to people. God's not looking for a people that have it all figured out. Their life is shiny and squeaky clean and it's all together. God's looking for a vulnerable people. Why? Not so he can put you up there like this woman at the well, five uh, uh, husbands and all this. Look at this girl, man. Check it out. She's a piece of trash. No. He wants your story to be told because it's not so much about your sin as it is about his goodness. It's about his overcoming I can stand on this stage and tell you today that God, by the authority of Christ, has given me victory over addiction, victory over pornography, victory in my marriage. I know how to help dig people out of messes because I've been there and I've seen a good God who dug me out. And it has nothing to do with how awesome I am. It's because I literally got on the floor before God and I said, please, Jesus, fix this. I don't know what to do. And in his faithfulness, as I desire intimacy with God and I begin to protect the boundaries that he's given me and I begin to submit my whole self to him, he says, that guy can have my secrets. It's the glory of God to conceal a matter. It's the glory of kings to search it out. I'll give him some secrets. I'll give him revelation. That's what God wants to do with every single person. Your testimony of breakthrough in your life is not about how much you are terrible. It's about how good God is. And it's designed to be a wellspring of life so that other people can come and they can get sustenance for their soul. They can be filled and they can say, if they can do it, so can I. So can I. That's the story of the God we serve. He wants to take your mess and he wants to fix it for the community for the body of Christ, for the goodness of God and the breakthrough of yourself and others. You become a city on a hill because he's so good. So yeah, 
it's going to be a little bit uncomfortable. God's going to ask you to bury yourself a little bit. You're going to have to get up in front of people and say things you don't want to say. You're going to have to admit the things that you don't like admitting to. It's not fun. First few times I did this, I didn't like it. I walk off feeling like a piece of trash. But the thing is, is the more that I do this, the more and more that I don't care what people think. Why? Because he's made famous. He is the reason why every single one of us exists. And he's worthy of all of it. He's worthy of every single story in this room. So tell your story. Don't be ashamed of how good he is in your life. When he begins to trust you, he gives you revelation that is empowered by his Holy Spirit for yourself and as a treasure for others. If you would, bow your heads, close your eyes. Here's how we're gonna respond today. I have two calls, two things that I want you to think about. The first one's this. If you need a breakthrough in your life, if you need the Lord to move in some kind of way, we're going to open the altars as we're, we're going to kind of sing just a song of response to, to close out our time. There are people that want to come. They want to anoint you with oil. They want to pray over you. If you need the Lord to break through, if you need an encounter with God where he moves in your life, we want to pray and agree with that. So that's the first one. The second one's this. Tell your testimony. My challenge to you this week is God is so worthy of every single breakthrough story that we have. This room right here represents hundreds and hundreds of stories of God's goodness and breakthrough in each one of our lives. He's worthy of it. So I want to challenge you, write down your story and share it. Ask God for an opportunity this week. Ask him for eyes to see and ears to hear to be able to discern when you need to share a story of God's goodness and breakthrough in your life. Romans, or, uh, excuse me, Revelation 12 says that we overcome, we conquer by the blood of the Lamb. And the word of our testimony. And that's when we combine those two things, the blood of Jesus covering our sins and the power of his breakthrough in our life. That's where the enemy gets his head crushed. That's what you get to do this week. Even if you're in the middle of the breakthrough, maybe you had not got all the way through yet. Still proclaim his goodness. It's coming. God is on the move, friends. Just submit to his will and his way. As we sing this song, the altars are open. If you need a breakthrough, 
come and receive from the Lord. Thanks for listening to the Mount Zion Wesleyan Church podcast. We hope this message has inspired you to take a next step in your walk with Jesus. For more messages or to watch our full worship gathering on demand, visit us online at mountzionwesleyan.com.